Donnell Banks and McKinsey Church. And uh, John, I think, has stepped down and is uh, taking up a leadership role over there at this point. And they worshiped with us for a long time. So we will look forward to, uh, to your message today on this subject. Welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. I bid you greetings. And uh, it's wonderful to be here. It's a privilege to share the pulpit uh, up here with others and take it over from Calvin for a while. And Calvin and I, especially when I was uh, in full-time ministry as of nine months ago, uh, we were going to get together, but then something called COVID happened and messed uh, that among many other things up. But it's good to have gotten to know him recently, and it's good to be, be able to serve you this morning. I want to do two things before we delve into it. One, I'd like to, like to pray, and then two, I want to read something from Ephesians, which I will not reference directly, but will kind of set the tone for the lesson this morning. But first, would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to be anywhere that your people are, not just on Sunday mornings, but anywhere that they are. For wherever your people are is the church. We pray this morning, especially in the remembrance of the world and us, for the concept and for those who are undertaking the challenge of fatherhood. We pray for those who have become fathers recently, pray for those who have lost their fathers recently, for those who have chosen to be fathers in some way. We pray for those who have been wounded and hurt by their own fathers or lack thereof, and we pray that we can guide them into your loving hands as the ultimate father. God, even as we turn our thoughts <clears throat> to your word today, let us be cognizant of the, the needs of the world and the need for them to know you as the eternal Father each and every day. And I pray that the church can live out what that means as we continue to strive for it ourselves. Bless this time, God. Speak through me or in spite of me, whichever you must do. And I pray that you work as you already have been working. I pray that we can see and be led to the ways that you have already been working in this room, in the hearts of these people, and in this church and our community. Thank you, God, for your promises that we can stand on in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'd like to read, as we set out, <clears throat> Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14. For he himself, meaning Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, and expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Once again, thank you for letting me come, and thank you for letting me speak to you this morning. If you haven't met me and my family already, uh, we are Thomas and Amy Pruitt. Next slide, please. 
I'll just kind of gently subtle to you, so I'm not trying to say that all the time if you can. The clicker's not working this morning, so it happens. And if you haven't noticed already, we are Thomas and Amy Pruitt, and we, have, we do have a couple kids. Next slide, next slide, please. Uh, if you, most of you, actually many of you, have known Amy and Madison already, and you have the advantage because if you know her first, I am much more tolerable to be around. Thank you for the laughs and no amens, but that's another story. If you don't know us, I still recommend you meet her first for the aforementioned reasons. But this is our family. Uh, obviously, there's Thomas and Amy. Our oldest is Madison. She moved out about a month ago, so we're adjusting to that and uh, praying fervently. But we also have four other kids uh, from the right to the left. We have Mitchell in the glasses, then little Mariah, Matthew, and our littlest, Melissa. So that is a little bit of our family. And uh, if you want to know more about our backstory, you're more than welcome to, uh, to come and chat with us. We're pretty, we try to be pretty open book. Uh, but we've actually been in ministry for almost 10 years. Uh, we're in between things right now, but we are seeing what God has in store for us next. The topic which I want to address this morning is a little bit of an odd titled one, but I, best I got, a 2022 first century church. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is, why are you here? Now, I know, it's Sunday morning at 10.30, roughly-ish, well, now it's 11, and it's time for church. So you're probably here. For many of you, that's probably the reason you're here. Let's go a little bit bigger than that. Why are you really here? Why are you part of the church? Why do you come? Why are you a part of this body? What do you think about whenever you think of church? Let's start there, for instance. Some people may think of things like buildings and, and such. And there are some very, very beautiful buildings out there. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, been to cathedrals. You have this beautiful, amazing architecture inside that you go, and for me at least, you feel very humbled by the presence of God. Now, they were used in odd, sometimes abusive ways early on, but that's one of the story. Beautiful, beautiful buildings. Maybe some of you think of chickens. If you don't see it, you will. And you'll also be thinking of this the entire sermon. I should have put this last. <laughs> Maybe some of you think of fellowship or Bible study, of, of the getting together with other people. Maybe some of you think of what you do when you get together. Maybe think of serving, serving those around you, serving your community, serving in multiple ways, serving the poor. Maybe some of you think of singing and, and the communion. I know for me, I didn't grow up in churches of Christ. I didn't grow up going to church, as a matter of fact. But when I was young, we did go to church, uh, uh, a church of Christ in Bethalto, Illinois. And I was only six years old, the same age my second son is. And I learned to read music at that church. And I would bug the song leader to sing the new song, which we don't sing much anymore because everyone's scared of it, but it's an awesome song. Amen? Thank you. <laughs> How many of you don't know what the new song is? Ah, it's a good song. You should look it up. Anyway, doesn't matter. Maybe you think of that. Maybe you think of just being together, the relationships you have. Uh, a little bit different than fellowship, but just, you know, the other people working together, teamwork, what you can accomplish. Or maybe you just think of your absolutely handsome minister. <laughs> who I cannot compete with, but oh well. <laughs> what do you think of church? Well, I see children's books nowadays, and a lot of them talk about, and not just children's books, but a lot of church books talk about going to church. Well, that's not wrong. It's definitely not right. 
Why is that? Well, because the people are the church. Why is this building the church building? Because the church meets here. Only because the church, the people of God, meet here is this a church building, and vice versa. Conway Twitty. <laughs> we should make that into another song. Hello, spirit. It's good to see you. <laughs> Never know what's going to happen with the guest preacher, do you? Here's the thing. We talk about going to church. We talk about that the people are the church, but let's start to marry these things a little bit together a little bit. If you want to delve briefly into some Greek with me, here we go. The word for what's church in the Bible, the Greek word used is kuriakos or kurios. And this is unsurprisingly very self-explanatory. It literally means that which belongs to, in the Greek, non-biblically, understand, not talking about the church specifically, to thee or a Lord. You can actually use this when talking about a secular Lord. You can use this talking about a person like a Lord of a Lamb. Kyriakos, that which belongs to thee or a Lord. In the Bible, but next one please too, we see it in a couple ways. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper, the supper which belongs to the Lord that you eat. Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the day which belongs to the Lord, which is, you know, every day. But that's usually what a lot of people think, and when we talk about the church, that's kind of what we mean. Well, as many of you might know, the word in Greek that actually talks about the people is not this word. Sometimes it responds to the Lord's people, but the church, when we talk about the church, what we really mean is not this word. Anyone know it offhand? The word for the people, the church, I heard it just a minute. Now, for you Greekers out there, I, I said ecclesia a long time. I looked into it more. You notice the accents on the E in the middle? So I started pronouncing it ecclesia. I don't know if that's right or wrong. You can debate me, but that's how I'm going to do it today because that's where the accent is. I don't know. It's the word ecclesia or ecclesia. And here's the first century Greek meaning. A civil or political body called and or elected for a particular purpose, a governing body. And we see this a couple times in Scripture. In Acts 19.32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. We see this a couple times in Scripture, and it's referred to the people of God several times as well. Now, notice what this says. And I want you to actually dwell on this for a minute. A civil, meaning body for society, or political body called and or elected for a particular purpose. An ecclesia in the ancient Greek was actually oftentimes elected for census purposes or tax purposes, and they had power of the government. They had authority. They had a purpose. They had a reason for meeting. They had a reason for serving their society. They had a particular purpose, and oftentimes they were given the authority from whoever they got the authority from to do what they were called to do, an ecclesia. Now, real quick, there's a word in here which is a buzzword nowadays, and I want to define real quick, and that's the word political. When I'm talking about political, here's what I'm talking about. The word political, next slide please, I want to define this way. Activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, especially in the debate among individuals having or hoping to achieve or use power. Now that's a little bit wordy. Basically what I want to tell you is this. I'm not talking about how we define politics nowadays. Left or right, partisanship, policy making. Wherever you lean on that, I'm not talking about that. 
what I'm talking about particularly is this last little bit. Activities associated with how people achieve and use power. Keep that in mind. When I mean political, politics, I mean it in more of the first century sense, which is how people gain and use power, such as an ecclesia would. Why well, are we all tracking so far? Do I need to restart with the chicken church? <laughs> Amen if you're tracking so far. Thank you very much. So what does this mean? This is an interesting foundation for stuff. But what does this mean to us today? What does this mean for a sermon? <clears throat> what does this mean to us? If a preacher can answer that, he shouldn't preach. What did a first century church really look like if it's an ecclesia that has a political structure and that we base, hopefully, our church on what they did? Let's delve into that, shall we? A first century church. Tell you what, go ahead and click through to you have the next slide to you have everything around it. So go ahead and click, 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 click. There we go. Stop right there. Thank you. This is based on some research by a scholar named Peter Oakes. I highly recommend his work, uh, Reading Pompeii. That's where I got the majority of this and a couple other sources. A first century church, first of all, was about 30 people. So that's. 4, 8, 12, it's about mm, generously about over here, about cut through the middle of this. That was usually about in the Roman Corinthian time, about the size of a house church, because that was about as big as a house was. And that's the first thing you have to keep in mind. Remember that these are house churches. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have places they would meet. Generally, they met in a house of someone who was fairly well off, usually a business owner who had a large enough house to which they could meet in the center. And that's roughly what this house is. It was a house that was built kind of in a square or a rectangle with the middle roofless. So there was a garden. They didn't quite call it a garden, but there was an open area in the middle. And that's usually where the church would meet, typically. Now, there were exceptions, but this is uh, high level. As I said, the owner of the house usually was some sort of craft worker. He had a trade or might have even owned a business or did some other form of commerce to where he was able to have a house this size that he could have people into it. So you have the craft worker, the business owner, the owner of the house. You have <coughs> the owner's family, a wife, several kids, most likely. Oftentimes, this is still in the area of having several children. You would often have renters in the house. If there was a few extra rooms, they would open up a room or two for people coming through, whether they were in the town or conducting business or whatever, renters to come and rent out the room for a little bit of extra money. And they were expected to be a part of whatever activities that the family did. You had the converts, of course. You had the people who had come to believe in Christianity from wherever they were in that, their section of the city. Maybe they came from across the city. Maybe there were several of them. Maybe they were the only ones in town, whatever it was. You'd have Roman slaves who were there. Sometimes even, depending on where you are in history, sometimes even the slaves of the owner who professed Christianity. It's a crazy thing that Christians in the first couple centuries, and actually up until not that long ago, still owned slaves. But it was true. You'd have the slave families and everyone that was associated with them. 
you'd oftentimes have homeless people who would come in because they knew the Christians early on would oftentimes have a meal. They would be generous. They would help them out with some clothing or food or whatever they had. You'd also have Jewish slaves, whether they were like the Romans, slaves of the family or slaves of other people who had the day off for whatever reason, was able to get away. You'd have the Jewish slaves. You'd have the Jewish free people as well who were coming in who were Jewish converts who believed in Christianity. So you had Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians. You'd have immigrants coming through from wherever they were who brought whatever they believed into it. And then finally you had customers. Remember I said this was a craft worker's house. This was a business in a sense. He would conduct business out of his house. So you'd have people probably coming through all day because you had to make money. You had to still have some sort of income. Peter Oakes, among others, tells us this was a pretty typical makeup with some variations of a first century church. Now look at this just for a minute. And don't just look at it and go, oh yes, I see. Look at it and really think about who these people are. And think about what issues they had. The obvious one, from which I just read, you had Gentiles or pagans, former or current, and you'd have Jews. Let's see. Most of the epistles, if not arguably all of them, are about pagans and Gentiles and Jewish people becoming unified under the cross of Jesus Christ. And obviously, if we have most of the epistles about that, it was not an easy thing. Just pick an issue, whether it's marriage, whether it's purity, whether it's meat, no meat, whether it's special days. You'd have an innumerable amount of issues to which, well, this is okay, and the Jews are like, no, it's not, or vice versa, and you'd have conflict. So that's one out of many. You'd have Roman and Jewish slaves. Well, first of all, you'd have them right next to free people. You don't think that caused a little bit of tension? Hey, I own my house. I get to do what I want. I have to go back to my master tomorrow or later today. Even if it was the way that you knew, don't we still look at people, even if we're in good situation, and go, man, they've got it. Let's add another context to this, especially since children's church is going on. Roman slaves, and oftentimes their families, possibly even their children, were sexually available to their masters at any given time. So you want to talk about even among Jewish slaves, how about Jewish free people? The importance of sexual purity and family and, and lineages, unclean, clean, purity. Those are just three issues, let alone the immigrants and the customers or the homeless people. Think of whatever issues you want. They probably had it. And this is only 30 people. The issues they had, the ignorance that they had. Keep in mind, that Paul and his New Testament letters were not immediately circulated. If this is true, and we have good reason to think it is, this is roughly at least 15 years after the crucifixion, because remember, for the first 14 years or so after the crucifixion, the church was exclusively Jewish. Gentiles had not been brought in yet. But the New Testament letters had not started to be circulated until roughly at least then. So there's a good chance that they don't have anything that they're necessarily preaching off of or teaching off of Jesus, they're most likely referencing Old Testament scriptures, which Jesus has every yes in. 
But yet, what are they talking about Jesus? Well, they're talking about what they've learned themselves. There's a friend of mine down in Lubbock. He's actually passed on, but he talks about this. He talks about that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. So true in this, because they didn't have, well, Paul over there said this. They're like, this is what I know. What about this question? I don't know. What about this question? I wonder what issues they were concerned about. Probably not the same as ours. Think about the lives that these people had. Think about the family makeup. Talk about, just you can go on and on and on and on and on about the issues that these 30 people had. I'm doing this because I want this group to seem more real to you than just what's up on a PowerPoint screen. These are typical people. And if you'll notice, these are of the lower class of society. The, the highest class one was the owner of the house and his family. Everyone else is kind of the dredge of society. Here's the point. Remember our definition of Ecclesia? Paul has the audacity. Paul has the audacity to call this group, this group, an Ecclesia. One who has achieved and has power to do something do something certain, do something special, do something specific in their society. This group, with all of its issues, with all of its problems, with everything it isn't, Paul says you're an ecclesia. If it's not hitting home, the typical person, when they read that from Paul, would have said, Paul, you're crazy. These people are nothing. No, Paul says, they're an ecclesia. Why can he say that? Why can he say that? Well, because of the principle of who they are no longer should they believe in Jesus Christ. Paul writes things like this here in the church, in the ecclesia, there is no Greek or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is saying, that those who become part of the ecclesia, who they are or who they were, who society says they are or were, who even their family members tell them they are or were, who even other people in the church may tell them they are or were, Paul says all that is gone Christ is in you and in all of you, and through all of you, you are in Christ. And Christ's identity, who Christ is, is the only one that matters. For these people, I think we've lost some of the impact, not we meaning today, but we've lost some of the impact of this in our society nowadays. But it shouldn't, because this principle is still true, and we'll rope right into that. But for these people to hear who you are is who you were. Who you are is now Christ. And because of that, you are an ecclesia. You have power. You have authority. You have purpose. You have mission. You have, you have something to do. Some of these people, they had never been validated, never been empowered, never been talked to like human beings in their life. And Paul says, you are an ecclesia. You. You. One of my favorite phrases for this group comes from a scholar 
and he calls them a fellowship of difference. Now keep in mind how this is spelled. Not difference meaning the CE like this, they have differences. But the beautiful part of the Ecclesia in Christ Jesus is that they are all different people from all different walks of life, from all different backgrounds, who have huge issues, who have huge issues, political, social, moral, ethical, purity, sexual, all these different barriers. And Paul says, all one in Christ Jesus, all your different make up what the Ecclesia is and makes it so powerful. It's oxymoronic, isn't it? Yet it's so true. Go back just a minute ago uh, to, a, to a slide where all the, all the different people, if you would, please. I'm not going to harp on this, but I think the appropriate application offhand is not necessarily where you land, because we're all probably Gentiles in here, I'm guessing. We're all free people in here, I'm guessing. Um, some of us may be immigrants. Some of us may be customers in a sense. I'm not asking where you fit in, but what I'm asking is put yourself in the place of one of these and think about what group is reminiscent of a group today that you would feel uncomfortable sharing an ecclesia with? What group out there would you feel uncomfortable sitting in the chair next to you? I'm not saying say it out loud, but I almost guarantee there's someone that you're thinking of or some group or some whatever. They had this, and it was, <laughs> it was obvious. It was verbose how much they didn't like the other person being there. And Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you are in Ecclesia. Here's the thing, and many of these points we know, but hopefully with this foundation, they hit a little bit differently. Christ, the importance of Christ, why the Ecclesia matters, is that Christ completely redefines politics. And yes, we can apply this in a sense today. Christ redefines politics. Christians have an entirely new allegiance. It is no longer, this is what matters, or this is what matters, or this is what matters. Do politics matter? Sure they do. But they matter way under the banner of who Christ Jesus is and his mission. We must always remember, as they had to do, Jesus is Lord, and whatever you want to put in there, whatever that is, is not. They had Caesar. They had people who would literally kill them if they didn't follow their commands. And yet Paul was telling them, because you're in Christ, yes, slaves obey your masters. Yes, all these things. Live a good and humble life. Thessalonians, live a quiet life that you may speak about the gospel some. But remember, politically, who has power over you? Who has power under you? All the way that you think of power, all the way that the world thinks of power, is completely on its head now. Christ is Lord. Christ is your allegiance. Christ is who defines what power is. Nothing else. And what we just read, Matthew 6, 24, where your treasure is, compared to your kingdom, it's still very applicable today. The question is from this still that they had to ask themselves and what we have to ask ourselves nowadays is who or what masters us. And it doesn't have to be obvious. It doesn't have to be someone who obviously, like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, going in, hee, 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 my money. But what political spectrum, what candidate, what talking head talk show, what policy? 
Now let's get a little bit more big picture. What, if anything, in your heart tells you, if only I had this, or if only this happens, or if only, if only I had this, then the world would be good. Then I'll be happy. Then we'll be complete. That is what masters you. And Christ says, no more of that. I am your Lord. And only I am your Lord. True then, true now. Second thing is, Christ completely redefines our status. This is incredibly important back then. And it still is true now because we still, we still have so many ways that we want to put barriers in between ourselves and rack and stack ourselves and feel better about ourselves compared to other people. Christ completely redefines our status. Identity back then equaled your status. You are a slave. Oh, we know where you rank. Oh, you are a lord. You know where you rank. You're a master of this house. I know where you rank. Christ throws that away. And it didn't matter anyway because most of those congregations members had no status. They had no identity. They were a slave. They were an immigrant. They were a pagan. They had no status. But Christ says, in me, there is no status except believer. There is no status except Christian. There is no status except me, who is now in you. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live, but... Christ who lives in me. The status has been completely wiped away, and it's only Christ that matters now. Thirdly, Christ redefines what unity means. Once again, think of that picture. They had issues, man. Glad we don't. Christ redefines unity. It's not just, and it's not just a personal transformation. It's not just, well, now that Christ died, now I can do what I need to. But no, we have to keep in mind, this is an ecclesial transformation. This matters across the whole of any little C, meaning congregation church, or big C church, meaning all the believers who believe in him. There's an ecclesial unity in Christ. Colossians 3.11 repeats the principle that Christ is in all and through all. Whatever barrier there is, in any way, in every way, it's not more powerful than who Christ is. And this does matter in a personal level, as well as a church level. We should be the ones to wave the banner of, come as you are, because whoever you are, there's no barrier between us and you. I know I'm a guest here, but perhaps I should lean on this a little bit, perhaps especially among the political spectrum nowadays. It's easy. It's easy to say, well, of course we want the homeless, or of course we want those who, who believe differently. Maybe it's even easier for you to say, you know, those who are from the LGBTQ movement, we want them to come. Maybe it's a little bit harder for you to say, I want a Republican or a Democrat to stick next to me. Throw it away. Unity in Christ. Unity in Christ. Here's why this matters. It's not just me preaching to you. Here's why this matters. As you know, we believe in the mission of God. We heartily, wholeheartedly, at least I pray we do, believe in the mission of God. Here's why all this matters. Just like how we talk about going to church versus that we are the church. We have not gotten it wrong, but we haven't got what the mission of God is quite right. 
Why this matters is this very simple point. The church is not just following and fulfilling and carrying out the mission of God. Why it matters is because the church is the mission of God. The church is meant to be the place to where there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian or barbarian, slave or free man. The church is meant to be the place that shows the world what status in Christ means, what unity in Christ means, what being an ecclesia united by the mission of God means. The church is the place where the mission of God is carried out. The church is the place where the work of God has to happen. The church is the place where these issues are supposed to be worked out. Yes, we are supposed to go and do stuff as well, but we're supposed to do it here, not this building, but between us, between believers, between Christians, as an ecclesia first and most. Because now we are God's chosen people. And it doesn't mean that we're his pets. It means that we have the higher level of responsibility to report to our God as our Father who has given us the grace of Jesus Christ and lavished it upon us. That's amazing. And tells us how we need to be. Why this also matters is I know many of you know that the world is hurting. It's been hurting for a long time, and it hasn't gotten better. Here's my question, which I've asked several people. If the world cannot see a place in which political and stature and unity differences cannot, can be worked out, if the world can't see a place like that, If the world can't see that in the church, what do we have for them? Because if the church, who is called to be barrierless, is the one enforcing those barriers, are we surprised the world's not jumping at our door to say, we want to be a part of you? As a father ought to show his children how to walk and how to be. Not just teach them the lessons, but walk the walk and show his children, here's what it means to be a man, or here's what it means to be a godly woman. Here's what it means to live in a way worth emulating. So should the church be showing the world what it means to live like our Heavenly Father. It matters because that's how the church started. That's why we're all here. Why are you here? Because they, many years ago, imperfect as they were, messed up as they were, issues out everywhere like they were, through the grace of God, through the grace of Jesus, through people who are willing to put in the work, they work towards that stature nullification. They work towards that unity. They work towards what it meant to be an ecclesia. As should we. It's all possible because of the empty tomb. As Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, my Thomas Revised Version, we're all fools. But if he did, that he did, there's no question 
of how we ought to strive, what we ought to strive for, and how we ought to be as an ecclesia. I don't mean to come and step on some toes as a guest preacher. I am coming back next week. Maybe some of you won't. But this is something which I feel very convicted in, having been in ministry and just being someone who lives life just like the rest of you. I'm convicted myself of how I fail in showing people what a true ecclesia looks like, what unity looks like, what's no stature except that in Christ looks like. I fail all the time, as do we all. But yet it's important, I believe, to still remind ourselves, here's what we were meant to be. Here's what we were called to be. And here's what we can still be in the grace of Jesus Christ. So, I invite us to strive for that. I invite us to strive for the image and the picture of what we still can be as an ecclesia who no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter who you are, you, we, have power, the power of God to be what the world needs us to be, what God calls us to be, and to be what we can only be in the power of Jesus Christ. An ecclesia which shows the world who our Father is and what it means to be in Christ. I challenge us, not me challenge you. I challenge us. And I invite you this week as we live our lives to take that little step closer to being the ecclesia of God. Holy Father, you hear our hearts. You hear our challenge. Lead us to your work this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.